Why don't you pray with me one more time before we begin? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace today, your abundant goodness in our lives. Father, we thank you that you are an all benevolent God. We confess before you, Lord, our sin and misery. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you are so gracious in taking us out of the domain of darkness and translating us into the kingdom of your light and of the kingdom of your Son. Father, we ask and pray that you would encourage us today, Lord, as we look at a very practical subject, as we talk about what it means to be the body, what it means to love the brethren, what it means to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, not only in our own life, but how we then demonstrate that to our brother, our sister. We pray, Father, that you would fill us with the gentleness and the patience of Jesus, that you would give us more of him, more of his character, more of his virtue, more of his beauty, and more of his heart, that we would obey the invitation to come. Jesus says, learn of me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. And so, Father, we confess that oftentimes we're weary, oftentimes we're tired, oftentimes we are discouraged, downtrodden. And so we pray, O God, today, be the lifter of our head. Help us to look up and to know where our help comes from, to set our sight on Zion. Pray that you would fill our hearts with gladness, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you saw those two verses there that we looked at. They are short, but very important because they form a transition in the text. The Apostle Paul getting ready to go from essentially his ministry, his example, the things that he has done, and focus on the church of Thessalonica and what they are and what they do and what they have done. And really the title for today's sermon is a very precious, dear, sort of a favorite subject of mine, and that's what I call the principle of imitation. The principle of imitation. You see the very word there in verse 6. You became imitators. And now, you know, we need to talk about imitation, and we need to sort of preface our words regarding imitation, what it means, what it doesn't mean. For example, recently here, one of my favorite I guess scholars, Bible commentators, theologians, uh, his, all of the literature that he had written commentary-wise were removed from a publisher, actually from several publishers, because they found evidence of plagiarism. Uh, these are very, very expensive books. This is, uh, there's a lot of money, I presume, a lot of money involved for the publisher. But they did not hesitate to remove every single book that they ever published from this author the minute they found out there was plagiarism involved. That's because that kind of imitation is not good. And so we do not, you know, plagiarism is tantamount to lying. It is tantamount to stealing. And so when the Bible tells us to imitate one another, 
What does it have in mind? Does it mean that we go around copycat each other in the way that we talk and the way that we dress, our style of certain things, maybe our choice of food? Well, depending on what choice of food you have, maybe I will imitate you. I don't know. But is it more of an imitation or surrounding idiosyncrasies, things like that? I've been to churches where everybody sounds like the preacher, everybody looks like the preacher, everybody talks like the preacher, everybody uses the same words, same language. They kind of have that same sort of aura around them. Is that what Paul is calling for when he talks about the principle of imitation? Certainly not. Uh, Ultimately, what we are to imitate is virtue, character, nobility. I guess if I could sum it up in one word, it would be holiness. To show you that, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. Perhaps one of the strongest texts on the subject of this principle of imitation. In 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, this is what the Word of God says. It says, The one who says, I have come to know Him, that's Jesus, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. So at the end of the day, you can talk a big talk. You can say you're Christian. You can say you're raised in Christian home. You can say you respect the Bible, man upstairs, all of that. But if there is not conformity to the commands of Scripture, to the Word of God, you are a liar. John is known for not holding back. He says the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him, watch this now, ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. That's exactly what Paul is calling for here in terms of what this imitation is like. All over Scripture, I have dozens and dozens of texts surrounding the principle of imitation in the Bible. We're told to imitate Old Testament people. We're told to imitate the Lord. We're told to imitate Paul. We are told to imitate one another in certain circumstances. We are told to imitate the churches of God. Imitation is everywhere. We are told to imitate God himself. But we are also given negative um, warnings against not imitating other examples. For example, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're told that Really the opposite of the principle of living by, by, by what is in keeping with sound doctrine and the commands of Christ is everything Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. But there he talks about all of these malicious things and all of these vices. He says, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine or sound teaching, that is what the principle of imitation is all about. It is everything that conforms to revealed truth. Therefore, it is not subjective. It is not to imitate an emotion. It is not we're trying to imitate some sort of subjective experience that we have. It's ultimately all distilled down to a practical, objective standard, and that is whether or not your life and mine conforms to Scripture, and that is going to determine whether or not we should imitate one another. Now, if we just take this text here in 1 Thessalonians, 
There are several principles here that come out of this whole imitation theology, if you would. And the very first one is this, that imitation is both human and divine. Did you notice that in verse 6? He says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. That is really precious and and also uh, demands a little bit of work because I think the first part we understand in terms of imitating Paul, but then how does this conform to imitating the Lord, especially in the context of what the Apostle Paul is talking about? Now, if you think about it, this all connects to the overarching context of chapter 1, which is what? Which is the fruit of election, right? I mean, this is what he's been talking about. Verse, uh, back, if you back it up to verse 4, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice or his election of you. And then he begins to delineate you know, all these characteristics that show that, the, that, that they were indeed God's elect. And so here we are again looking at one other reason for the overarching thanksgiving of the Apostle Paul as Paul is thanking God that God had chosen the Thessalonians. And I mean, can you blame him? I mean, there's this, this is a city right at the heart of the pagan Roman world. And he says that he is thankful that God had chosen them for his kingdom. And amen. Absolutely wonderful. But he's really turning on this uh, issue of imitation, and he's got these two aspects. And therefore, the first one I want to look at is the apostolic pattern, because I said it's both human and divine. And from the apostolic pattern, there is no uh, denying this principle, because Paul the Apostle himself calls in numerous places for imitation. I bet you know this verse, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? But he says this so many other times. He says it in 1 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, uh, this, is really, this is really frank. I mean, talk about just right up front. I exhort you, be imitators of me. Wow. In other words, we don't get off the hook. Um, and this is the plural. I exhort you, plural. Imitate me. And so everyone has a duty to as much as you are capable and able, knowing that you are not an apostle, you are not inspired of God, you are not a prophet of God, (laughs) every single one of us in here can, to some degree, imitate the virtue, character, and principles by which the apostle Paul lived his life. Uh, Look at Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians, really two critical texts on this principle of imitation. When I said that this is a precious um, teaching to me, it really is, because you come upon such sweet, wonderful scriptures that are very encouraging, and you just sit around and do a Bible study on all of the imitation passages in the Bible. Do this with your children. In Philippians 3.17, the Apostle Paul says, join, says, brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. See, this, all of this has to do with discipleship. Because this is to be perpetuated. This is to be not, not just from us to Paul, but anyone that looks or sounds or, or, or appears to be living as Paul lived in terms of his godliness, his virtue, his character. Uh, we ought to be able to identify in one another those areas that are worthy of imitation. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. You want to talk about a promise. This uh, principle of imitation comes with a great 
a very, very uh, valuable promise for us practically. He says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. I mean, that's a sermon right there. That's four points. (laughs) He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, if you know anything about the biography of the Apostle Paul, at this juncture, you could interject and say, the God of peace? Paul wrote that letter from prison. (laughs) Where's the God of peace? Well, the God of peace is something that transcends your trials. The God of peace is something that The God of peace is someone who can give you the ability in the context of the worst possible dilemma that you're in for you to rise above all your circumstances and still experience joy. That's what the God of peace does. The God of peace does not remove you from your trials. He doesn't take you out of your troubles. He doesn't necessarily instantaneously, you know, remove you from your financial woes or your marital woes or your, or your family woes or your parental woes. Do I want to keep going? Woe is me. Life is hard. And the peace of God does not mean the alleviation of hardship. Of course, you know that already. First Thessalonians chapter two, verse fourteen. Same letter. I, I, you know, uh, when you do exposition, listen to me, all you would-be preachers. When you're doing exposition, but everyone, uh, you know, there's sort of a circle, concentric circles that kind of go out from the center, and that is, you know, you're taught to stick to the same book. Same theologian, same situation, and then expand and enlarge from there. And then you go to the same theologian's other books and other writings, you know, things like that. But we're in the same exact book here. So we're right in the heart of the context of this letter. When Paul says in verse 14, you, brethren, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. So in other words, this is, this is exactly the context that this imitation principle is found in. It's found in the context of persecution. And we will look a lot more at that. We should be grateful, on a very practical note, that God has given us human examples to follow, right? I think we'd be too easy for us to get discouraged or get disillusioned if our only example was the sinless, right? Divine, all-powerful Son of God. I think, we, I think we would work the system too quickly and say, well, I'm not Jesus, But understand that God doesn't just give us a divine example to follow. He gives us another human, fallible, finite, imperfect, sinful, sin-carrying human being that we can pattern our lives after. In other words, this is not unrealistic. This is reality. We are called not to sort of aspire to do this, but to do it. Uh, And a matter of fact, that's what the church did. That's the grammar. It's not that they 
might become imitators, he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. This is not out of reach. And human examples for our instruction, for our imitation, uh, they're everywhere. Uh, They're in your church. They're in the row that you're sitting in. Um, They're also in books like we have out in the bookstore Uh, If you have not spent time reading church history, it's in church history, it's in biography. If you don't read biography, you need to pick up uh, biography, Christian biography. Let me tell you, let me, I I, I still find, I guess for some reason I shouldn't be surprised, but I still find it surprised that I meet Christians that have not plowed through in a meaningful way and done a lot of study and put a lot of time into John Piper's pastoral biographies that he had that he did well he's not pastoring anymore but he did for i don't know what 25 years or so go to desiring god and look up the series called men of whom the world is not worthy and plow through those biographies and listen to what god did in the lives of those men now it's just men because this is usually preached at a pastor's conference so it's usually typically showing us the example of other pastors or teachers. But I tell you what, I've learned so much. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the one that he did on Luther, that convicted me to the core, buried me under the ground because I didn't know Greek. And John Piper says in that sermon, for you younger pastors, he says, 40, 45 years old. I was like 20-something at the time. I'm like, Young? Well, you know, when you're 20, 45, it's like you're an ancient albatross, you know. I thought, if that's young, then what am I? What am I waiting for? You know, and that actually literally convicted me and propelled me to go and learn biblical Greek because of that biography. Because Martin Luther is famous for saying, if we lose the languages, we lose the gospel. And he said, it is a shame for pastors not to know their own book. Sorry, (laughs) I know it's, you know, look, I'm still working on my Hebrew, man, it's... You know, so no condemnation, okay? <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? Learning from human examples can propel you to do things. Uh, it's as simple as maybe going over to someone's house to see how they do family devotions. Maybe you're not good at it. Maybe you lack confidence in that area. Maybe you're lacking confidence in your fatherhood. Well, find the most godly father in the church and say, can I come over and see what you do? Can I pick your brain? It's that simple. But there's also a divine pattern. There's also uh, that aspect of the coin or that side of the coin, if you would, because they were not just imitators of the Apostle Paul. We can spend all day there. But notice he also say, he says here, you were imitators of us and of the Lord, which I thought, okay, that is glorious and that, is, that sounds wonderful, but it's also a little bit puzzling. Because if you just read the context, and I'm getting ahead of myself here a little bit, he says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. And then this is the explanation. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So then the question becomes, how or when did Jesus, because kurios here, G, uh, Lord, is referring to Christ. It's not referring to God the Father. So when did Jesus receive the word of God in much tribulation? Uh, especially as you think, as you consider the context of the Thessalonians, that this is Paul talking about their conversion. So when did Jesus get converted? Never. <laughs> so that interpretation's off the table. <laughs> Jesus doesn't get saved 
Jesus gives you salvation. He does not need salvation, right? He is the Savior. He doesn't need to be saved. So this is not telling us that Jesus, at some point in time, received the word through conversion, like the Thessalonians did. I think it's more general than that. I just think that what it means is that Jesus was, like them, persecuted on account of the word of God. But quickly, let's consider this idea of imitation. When we're thinking about imitating the Lord or the pattern that is given by the Lord, we have reached the ultimate level of this principle. Christ is the ultimate example for his people. And you know the passages that speak of this. Well, for example, in John chapter 13, verse 14, it says, If I, then the Lord and the teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Early church, they took that verse so serious, they actually engaged in foot washings. right? And some churches still do that today. I think it's a little kooky, but you don't want to wash my feet. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? It's not the actual ritual of washing the feet, but it's the posture of humility. That's what we need to imitate. We need to imitate his humble heart, his humility, his condescension. That's what we need to imitate in Christ. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Peter, who was present when Jesus said that, says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Just look at the context. You've been called for the purpose of suffering and to suffer persecution in the context. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Yeah, too much today is, if you would look around the evangelical world, you would think that following in the steps of Jesus means that Jesus must have been really cool. You look around the church today in the evangelical world, what's going on? You know, it must mean that Jesus was, you know, a rock star. No, Jesus was a humble servant. He came and he lowered himself, taking on the form of a slave. He came down to be the servant of all and to give his life as a ransom. Uh, He was not a rock star. I think Jesus would enter into a lot of our Christian venues today and sit there scratching his head and be just a little bit puzzled at what's going on. Famous preachers walking around with an entourage. Really? Don't, you know that i got to stop right there. <laughs> Robert knows. i got to switch gears. It's very simple. On the divine level, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, very, very explicitly here, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. If you're a child of God, you cannot but help. It is your new disposition. It is your new nature. This is your now your heart, your nature, your mind, your worldview. This is now the overarching principle in your life is to want to be like God. It's that simple. And if you want to, maybe some practical, let's get into the nuts and bolts of, well, what does this look like? Turn to Ephesians. I mean, I quoted Ephesians chapter 5, but let's look at the context there, right? Because it's like, okay, be imitators of God, and you might be ready to say, okay, well, ready, set, go. What does that look like? Well, Paul explains himself, of course. 
Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with 1 through 6, listen to what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do you know you're imitating God? How do you know you're an imitator of God? He says, walk in love. Of course, he begins with love because just like the fruit of the Spirit, which we'll get to in a moment, that's the, that is the deepest Christian grace that there is. Love excels it all. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma, but immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for saints. There must not be any filthy or silly talk. Uh, and I think sometimes we get confused. What is Paul talking about? There were filthy and silly talk. Uh, the word uh, filthy and silly talk, when those terms are combined, they literally speak of sexual coarse jesting. It just means dirty jokes. We cannot engage in that. No coarse jesting, which is not fitting. Rather, giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So amazing. Let's, let's move to the next point. He said, uh, if you go back to Thessalonians and First Thess. He goes on to really give us the context of this imitation. If that is the reality of the imitation, the reality of the imitation is that it's both human and divine. What is the context of the imitation? The context of the imitation is that imitation happens through adversity. That's what he says. He became imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. There it is again, which much, with much tribulation. Uh, this word here, tribulation, of course, that's the key word. What does tribulation word the, uh, mean? The word, the Greek word, thalipsis, just means literally a crushing. It's like the crushing of grapes. You crush them until the juice pours out. That's what the word means. It means that there is a, 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 a crushing that happens. It's a pressure cooker, if you would. And you are in the crucible of trial. And in the midst of that, that is when you are called to have joy. I see really overarching here two things that are going on. There's really, he gives us, an, he gives us a, uh, what I call the, uh, oh, where, where's the word that I use? The adversity and the attitude. That's the two things that are found in this, in this, uh, this verse here. Number one, the adversity. When he says that they receive the word of God with much tribulation, I thought, well, why don't we look at what that might have looked like? Looked like? Turn to Acts, Acts chapter 17, because that's when the church began there in Thessalonica. That's when Paul was there. That's when he was laboring among them. That's when the Word of God came to them. And that's the context of what went on here. Now, you remember from our introduction, we looked at this a little bit, but, but when the apostles arrived there in Thessalonica, they began preaching and teaching. And the Jews that were there in the synagogues that had existed there, they got wind that the apostles were there, and that enraged them. They couldn't believe someone was there preaching contrary to their uh, view of the Old Testament. And it says there in verse 4, it says, Some of them were persuaded, some of the people they were evangelizing, and joined Paul and Silas. Now remember, Silas is the Silvanus of Thessalonians, right? He says, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women of the community there, he says, But the Jews became jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob 
and set the city in an uproar. Set the city in an uproar. It's not just a you know, small group of people. The city was set in an uproar. They literally aroused the entire city. That's amazing. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Wow, that, that has negative connotations there. Bringing them out to the people basically means so they can be torn limb from limb. <laughs> That's what they were bringing them out for. When they did not find them, they, began, they didn't find the apostles. They began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men whom, who have upset the whole world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. Uh, remember, I told you at some point uh, before that when you brought somebody into your home, you were aligning yourself with that person. Uh, first century hospitality was very, very significant in the community. It was, uh, you know, it was very important. Uh, it was, you were literally saying that you were responsible for whoever came under the roof of your home. You're identifying with that person. You take on their baggage when they come into your home. That's the way the first century mentality thought. And so that's, that's why they pointed out Jason welcomed them. He identified with these people. And they all act contrary to the decree of Caesar, saying that there is, there is another king, Jesus, to which we say amen. King Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who, were, who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge or a bribe from Jason and others, they released them. That's just the first, in, just one sort of snapshot of what happened when the gospel came to the Thessalonians. You had a situation where a young guy or a, a man by the name of Jason is persecuted in this way. Now, you think that can have an effect on your community? You think that can affect the local church? I mean, just think about it. If we heard one of our members was dragged out of their house, the whole town was ready to lynch them, drag them to the court authorities where they had to pay a bribe to get out. I mean, that would really rock our world. And you know what? It's important that it does because we know that that is really when your faith is going to be tested. That's when you know whether a person is legitimately following Christ. You can have joy for a little while, but after a while, if that joy does not manifest itself in perseverance, as Jesus taught us, it is a false joy. The Apostle Paul considered it a great privilege to suffer with and for Christ. It says in Colossians 1.24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's a text that I've quoted many times, but, but it just simply means that the Apostle Paul saw it as a great privilege to be counted worthy to suffer in the name of the Lord. In terms of that suffering, one commentator said this, that what this would have resulted in is much difficulty in their alienation and in, and, uh, by unbe- uh, by, from unbelieving family members and friends. The curtailment of their opportuni- opportunities to maintain, let alone to improve their current economic and social status. I mean, think about what he just said there. Uh, a curtailment, a hindering of your opportunity to maintain, let alone trying to improve your economic and your social status. In other words, no one wants to hire you because you identify with that Jesus stuff. You see? And so he says, the restriction of their access 
to the city's political and social institutions. They had no voice. There was no justice. And their constant subjection to harassment and public insults. I mean, you watch a show like The View. Why, why would you, right? How many times do they have to insult Christianity? Right? You, you watch these sitcoms today, which I can't. I, I, I think sitcoms died in the 80s, you know, when they were somewhat funny. Now they're just, it's just the, the acting is so poor. <laughs> I might have dated myself, but. Everything is a slam on Christianity. Everything is a mockery. It's a making light of. It's a joking. It's a, you know, stupid, silly, religious people. Oh, the whole Jesus stuff. It's almost like a film is incomplete without blasphemy. This is the world that we live in, and we should not be surprised. But what's the attitude that we are to carry in the midst of all of this? He tells us. This is what made their conduct so exemplary. If you go back to Thessalonians, he says, it wasn't just that they imitated Paul and the Lord. It wasn't just that they received the Word of God. It wasn't just that they did it in the midst or in the context of tribulation. It was this, is that they still maintained a joy in the Holy Spirit. Or literally, as it says, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, number one, it definitely means that when it says the joy of the Holy Spirit, it means that this is a joy that is produced by the Spirit. It means that by virtue of our union with Christ, joy now becomes a dominant characteristic of your life and mine. How do you like that? Huh? You came in here today lacking joy? And here I am telling you on the authority of God's word, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. I mean, I I get it. We go through trials, we get depressed, we get discouraged, we have setbacks. We're discouraged because of ourselves, we're discouraged because of external things. We look around, we look within, and there's so much to be discouraged about. But in the midst of all of that, we are likewise told that we, by virtue of our union with Christ, have taken on a new virtue, namely joy. So many joyless Christians. Where's all the joy? It should be an abomination for Christians to lack joy. Why do I say that? You've been redeemed. If you don't have joy, you do not understand salvation, period. You don't understand that you were worthy of an eternal perdition in hell, an eternal conscious torment, and that God, by His sovereign grace, spared you from His wrath that you deserved and that you you could not free yourself from. You were in your sin and your misery, and you didn't even know it. And even if you knew it, you would prefer that to the grace of God. As C.S. Lewis said, you would lock the doors of hell from the inside. That's how much, because of your sinful heart, you opposed God. That's how hostile you were to God. That's why the Bible says they were haters of God. Because at the end of the day, 
I will prefer career, family, uh, spouse, maybe, uh, you know, this partner or whatever in life. I prefer money. I prefer sex, perversion, materialism, you name it. I prefer everything to God. The infinite good, I will take the infinite less. Isn't that terrible? Such is our sin and our misery. Oh, I tell you what, the confessions and the Puritans got it right. That's exactly the way that we should describe our former state outside of Christ, that we were in sin and in misery because our sin kept us trapped. We were bound. We were slaves of Satan, slaves of sin, and slaves of society. And God frees you from that. He releases you from that. Like the Apostle Paul. He opens your eyes. He appears to you. He commissions you. He gives you purpose and he gives you dignity and worth. I'll never forget, by God's grace, that one of the, the, one of the dominant things that flooded my heart, my mind, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I became a Christian, one of the dominant things that flooded my mind was, I finally have purpose. I actually know why I'm here. <laughs> I mean, 19 years of my life, I don't even know why I'm alive. What is life about? I finally know what the purpose of life is. And, and so the Spirit is the source of all of that joy. The second thing means is that because of this joy, they were able to transcend their circumstances. They had that joy, and that joy abided in them through the trials, through the circumstances. And thirdly, that joy was also sanctifying. It made them holy. I remind you what Jesus said about the parable of the sower, right? Matthew chapter 13. It says that, but turn there because I want, I'd like for you to actually look at it. Matthew chapter 13 as uh, Jesus is explaining what the parable of the sower is all about, isn't it remarkable that the focus is joy or the lack thereof? He begins in verse 20 where he says, the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately he receives it with joy. Looks good, right? Yet, He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when, watch this, and when affliction and persecution arises, why? Just because you got a dysfunctional family? No, 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 that's not persecution. Why? Why why, why did it arise? Because you were speeding and you got a speeding ticket and now you think you're being persecuted? No. No. It arises because of the Word. Immediately, He falls away. When all of those external factors that were keeping you together are taken away from you, suddenly you fall flat on your face because, as Scripture tells us, you were not of us. So when the Thessalonians receive the Word of God and suffer great persecution and endure much tribulation, and then they do it with the joy of the Holy Spirit and they persevere, tell you what? Like Paul, that's a good sign. That's a good fruit. Those are signs of election. 
That's a good evidence of your God choosing you for salvation. Praise God. That's how we should conclude in our own lives. What's the final thing? The beautiful thing here is if you go back to Thessalonians, as Paul brings us full circle. He begins with the principle of imitation and he closes. The same way, same principle, different people. Because notice what he says. He says, you became, verse 7, you became an example. Uh, that word example literally in the Greek is tupas. It's what used to be used to sort of seal, uh, uh, to seal seals on an envelope or something like that. You would stamp it and you would leave an image on there. You'd leave a type. You'd leave an imprint on there. And that's what he's saying is that you became an example in that way to the churches or to others here, it's the churches or the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So you think in Macedonia, you're thinking about the churches of like Philippi, Colossae, things like that. Achaia, you're thinking about the church of Corinth, church of Centuria, those kind of churches. All those churches were radically affected when they heard and saw the perseverance of this one church that had undergone all these trials. And they perpetuated this entire principle to imitate the virtue of one another. I want to end on an extremely practical note. So you think about this principle of imitation. How do we seriously, because it's not just Pastor Emilio talking about a neat little word that he created for a sermon, the principle of imitation. It's more than that. It's discipleship. It's life in the church. And the question is, is how do I, up here with as much angst as as much Anxiety as I have for you to get this, how do I communicate this to you in such a way that you will actually do something about it? That's the trick, by the way. It's not the Greek exegesis. It's how do I get Heritage Grace to do this? That's what really dominates my thinking when I'm preparing. How do I get them to adopt some of this? And so I point you into a very simple direction, okay? And that is that you take seriously the one another's of Scripture, Scripture, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, we are told to teach one another. Have you ever taught somebody that doesn't want to be taught? It's hard. Uh, especially if you've ever been a, a teacher or a substitute teacher or something like that. you got students that don't want to be taught. I remember one time I was preaching at a Bible college and thousands of students. I mean, it was like 1,500 students, something like that. This guy comes up, and I had a big blur, but for some reason I focused on this kid that walked up in the aisle. He sat there in the front, grabbed his uh, backpack, turned it into a good, nice little pillow, put it right there, and went straight to bed. <laughs> it's before I started. I looked at him, and I thought, I, I could single you out right now, but I wasn't going to do that to him. I Maybe mean, I should have, right? <laughs> Robert expects me to do stuff like that. That guy didn't want to be taught. Some people don't want to be taught. Some people do not want to learn. I've had this, this dilemma uh, uh, theologically. Somebody will come to my church and they'll say, hey, you know, I like this church. I've been going to this church. Praise the Lord. Oh, I found something I don't really agree with. This. And I'm ready to leave. Hey, you want to sit down and talk about it? I can show you in the scripture why I teach that or why we preach that here. You know what I mean? No, no thanks. Just not really interested. Okay. I mean, I can, I can show you, but you've got to be willing to be taught, you know? And um, some of the greatest words I've ever heard as a pastor is when usually young men come up to me and say, I want you to teach me everything that you know. I've heard that several times as a pastor. When I hear that, I just get all bubbly. and I can't lie. 
get all excited and bubbly inside. And I just think, praise the Lord. That's what I did to my pastor. I must have been 22 years old. I went to one of my pastors and I said, I want to know everything that you know. I want to do everything that you do. He says, okay, be here Saturday morning. Go one, uh, door-to-door evangelism from uh, 10 to 12. Okay, let's do it. See, it's just willing to be humble. Without humility, this principle doesn't get off the ground. So I'm going to level some humility passages at you. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Wow. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this purpose that you might inherit a blessing. How do you be humble, kind, loving toward other people? Remember that you are on your way to the most unspeakable joy that your soul can possibly fathom. And then turn around and say, I got a lot of reason to bless other people because I'm headed towards an inheritance that is undefiled and and will not fade away. And because of my inheritance, I can now turn to the person next to me and just say, I love you. 1 Peter 5.5, he says, Young men, you rambunctious, wild-spirited young men in the congregation, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself in humility toward one another. So just do a concordant study in your Bible, one another, one another, one another, one another. There's your ecclesiology right there. It's wonderful. James tells us very plainly, in humility, receive the implanted word of God or the implanted word which is able to save your soul. I can't think of anything more powerful when we are talking about imitating the Lord than imitating His humility. It's only when we're going to be humble enough to go to each other and to say, I want to learn from you. I... I, We can talk theology, that's great, and we can learn that from each other too. But you know, I want to learn how to I want to learn how to budget my finances from you. So I don't know what I'm doing. I want to learn how to be a wife. I don't know what I'm doing. I want to learn how to raise my kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord because I'm confused. I'm getting nowhere. You need to reach out to each other. Do you know the wisdom? Do you know the wisdom that resides in this church? It's there. I see it all the time. I pray that you will take advantage of that. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there just could be nothing more precious than the Lord of glory coming down and giving us an example to follow. And Lord, let us learn from the Thessalonian church as well. We are so blessed. The American church is at a great disadvantage at times because we just don't know persecution. Sometimes it takes that fire to refine a congregation. I pray, God, that whatever in your infinite wisdom you would ordain for our church so that our church could be refined and purified 
whatever fire you need to put us through, I pray that you would give us the grace, O oh God, that we would emerge joyful, thankful, and victorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.